iTunes presents Meet the Filmmaker at the Apple Store. The whole universe depends on everything fitting together just right. Have one piece bust, even the smallest piece. The entire universe will get busted. This here is an aurochs, a fierce creature. Stars coming! Stars coming! Y'all better learn how to survive. I'm your daddy, and it's my job to take care of you. Okay. Welcome this evening's guest moderator, Lisa Schwartzbaum from Entertainment Weekly, and tonight's guests, Ben Zeitlin and Lucy Alibar. Thank you all for being here. Thank you for being here. Absolutely. Um, I want to start out. How many, has anybody here seen the film? Okay, good. Well, this, this is, this <laughs> is the producers. <laughs> this is good to know because it'll help us in, in how we're discussing this. Um, one of the things I thought I would ask is if you were to explain to a group of really smart, cool people what Beasts of the Southern Wild is, please take it away. Yeah. Should we pitch a league of their own? Yeah. <laughs> we were talking earlier when we, uh, I think bef when we went through the Sundance Labs, that when we start to pitch it, we just start pitching other movies like The Rocketeer, a League of Their Own. And, it's uh, a really hard movie to explain, basically. Uh, it's, um, it's about, Beast of the Southern Wild is about a little girl named Hush Puppy. She lives with her dad in this uh, cutoff in South Louisiana, or in an in imagined world that we really got a lot from South Louisiana called the Bathtub. They have a wonderful, rich life together. And then a series of catastrophes kind of rain down, both environmental and kind of mythological, and uh, prehistoric beasts unfreeze out of the ice caps and start charging towards the town. And it's a, a story about the father teaching the daughter how to survive all that. Okay, that was, that, that was well done. One of the things that's interesting is that uh, it began actually, Lucy, as a play of yours. Um, what happened between the play and this film? This was called Juicy and Delicious? Yeah, it was a, a play I wrote about my own experience with my father getting sick and me 
really facing my, my own parents' mortality for the first time in my life. And I felt like, even though I, I, like my parents lied about my address so I could go to this really good public school in Tallahassee, like I, I felt like I was a pretty smart, well-educated, capable person, but I didn't know how to, I just wasn't equipped to deal with the idea of losing a parent. And so from that, I wrote this play that I said in South Georgia, where my dad is from, and the aurochs are, as the, as the father's dying, the world starts falling apart, because that was my, how, how just I, how I felt, like how order was just falling apart. And uh, so we did it a few doors down in, in Soho, but Ben came to me after we had produced the play and had, in the meantime, fallen in love with Louisiana, really found, just found this very compelling area of the world that he wanted to, to set the movie in. And so then we worked to transpose those characters and that story in this really incredible place that is Louisiana. Or it, it was an imagined world, a fantasy world, but it was really based on this, this place that Ben found in Terrebonne Parish, Louisiana. Do you want to add to that? Uh I'm um, sure. Apocrypha. Yeah, I mean, the you know, it, it sort of it was an interesting thing because I, I sort of was looking for, you know, I was trying to write a story about people who are holding out and basically, you know, refusing to leave their land even though, you know, the land was kind of falling apart under their feet. Um, and you had discovered Louisiana by then and fallen in love with it, or this was an idea that you had even before you found the geography that spoke to you. No, it sort of emerged out of. I moved to Louisiana in 2006, and and I made a short film there called Glory at Sea, and then. This was kind of emerged out of that. The community that I made that film with sort of inspired me to tell another story that wasn't that, that was about what it is to kind of hold on when everyone's telling you to leave. And um, you know, the what, what happened was I was sort of looking at Lucy's play almost as a separate project. But um, as I as I thought about it, I realized that I was kind of writing about the same thing in two places. You know, this story of a community losing its land and the story of a little girl losing her father. That there was this emotional through line that connected both things. And so. Lucy's play really kind of unlocked this idea and, and the two merged and became what the film is. Well, one of the things that I think is most interesting about the film and actually probably is reflected in, in the way it's made and looked, I can actually quote um, A.O. Scott in the New York Times today who I thought actually put it quite nicely in saying, Imagine that you're walking into a bar that you don't know and you're listening to music you haven't quite heard before. There's no, what's great is you have no reference for what you're looking at. It's a new way of looking at things. And one of the, th one of, one of the things that I, I think is interesting about that is how, that how you made the film in this collaborative style affected the look and feel of it. Could you talk to him a little bit about Court 13? And this was really made with a, a whole different way of filmmaking than we're used to. Yeah, I mean, we, we try to sort of create a system that allows a ton of agency to a ton of different people, because films are by nature collaborative. But this is your own invention, right? I mean, do, or did you have any model for doing this? This seems like the opposite of how film is made. Yeah, it is. You know, I mean, I guess my experience was I worked on a film as a PA and then did everything the opposite way, um, <laughs> you know. So, you know, because you have so many people, I mean, a film is made by an army and you have so many people touching every element of it, you know, but they do it, but the way that it's traditionally done, you just have no, you know, as an artist, it's very frustrating because you don't have any ability to actually affect what ends up on screen. And, you know, our crew is made up of not a bunch of sort of traditional film workers. It's a lot of people that are, when they stop working on the movie, they're a sculptor or they're a painter or they do something completely different and they have this kind of talent and voice that, 
you know, for me, um, trying, to, trying to break down that hierarchy allows all this, uh, all these different artists that I love to, to, to kind of breathe their art into the film and so the fabric becomes something that isn't just you know, me and Lucy's imagination, it has all this other creativity embedded in it. Well, one of the things also is that, of course, you were using non-professional actors. It, it, I mean, in finding um, Nazi, is that her nickname? Um, Nazi? That's, that's her nickname, but Covengene is, is her, uh, and, her uh, grand name. <laughs> and Dwight Henry, who plays her father. Mm -hmm. Finding these two, who we just saw briefly in this clip, they are the heart and soul of this film, their, their personality, what they project, and they are untrained. So uh, how do you go about knowing, oh, that's the one, and working? Do you have to redo the entire film once you find them? You do, basically. <laughs> yeah. And they, they're both so emotionally available, and so they both have this incredible emotional transparency. I mean, just, you know, to speak outside of directing, just as somebody who... I didn't look at all the auditions for Hush Puppy and Ben and the crew looked at about 4,000 girls and- 4,000 non, uh, just 4, local girls, right? yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. non-professional girls. Right. Uh, a lot. And I remember seeing her, I remember Ben sent me a, a Vimeo clip of her and it, it, it was this real like lightning in my heart. I can't even describe a better way of, but she's so vivid and she's so strong and has such a, intense focus and sense of morality and vibrancy that it it becomes a pleasure to rework everything to so to what her. were things reworked once you had a script and then you found them and then you adapted the script to them how did that go yeah i mean it's a series of um you know we're it's very kind of built into the process you know the script is being written as we're casting and we actually even as before we even found her we lowered the age of the character from 11 to 6 just in the experience of casting and realizing that the voice of the film was closer to the younger kids than we were seeing than, than the older kids. So even that, it's even transforming them. But then when she came into the film, or when anybody comes into the film, um, you know, we don't do auditions with text. We do, we do these improvisational auditions. And then once we cast someone, you know, we start off doing interviews where we're asking them, you know, asking her, for her, for example, you know, it's tell us what's the difference between a strong animal and a weak animal? What are their different qualities? And trying to understand how she thinks about the issues in the film. And then, you know, all that sort of gets taken into language that stories, you know, are, there's, always, there's a very strong story and structure already in place, but the kind of uh, language of that stuff and the texture of it gets modified to kind of fit her, both, both to allow the actors to kind of understand each moment through their own experience, and then also to kind of educate us you know, to bring, you know, the, the actors bring our cast partly for their ability to act and partly because of who they are. And so they bring themselves and their experiences to the film and actually kind of often re-educate us about the characters and the, and, and well, the, and the story. Well, one of the interesting things I think about working with such a young girl, with any young child as, as your star, is always the question of what was brought out by direction and what was, what was hers. Mm -hmm. um, did, how closely did you have to work with her in order to get the responses that you did? You know, um, it, it was amazingly traditional process with her. Like, you, you th I thought going into it that it was going to be a lot of trickery, you know, that you would sort of roll the camera secretly and tell her a joke if you needed her to laugh, and you would just cut that into the film, you know, because that's how you sort of... I'd worked with kids before, and you do a lot of that, you know, to try to fake your way through um, difficult emotional transitions or something. But with her... 
you couldn't knock her out of character. You know, whatever you told her to do, you, we, would, we would sneak people into the room that she didn't know was there to try to surprise her or scare her, and she would not know you were sitting here, turn and you'd be there, and there would not be like a glitch in her focus. And so it became the kind of thing where we, you just work with her like an actor. You say, this is your motivation. Here's your goal in the scene. When this, this little six-year-old girl says, uh, oh, okay, my motivation. No, I mean, you don't use the word. If if sometimes I would say, here's your motivation, and she'd say, Ben, I'm six years old. Do you think I know what the word motivation means? <laughs> <laughs> so, you, you know, but, so she, but she has this self-awareness, and she has the ability to internalize emotion and, and information in a way that's superhuman for her age. It's, I mean, she's really a, it's not like if you met her here, you would say that's, that's a normal little kid. She's really got a, she's got a special kind of mind. And did she know uh, Dwight Henry, who plays her father? Did, she, did they know each other before? No. They, they hadn't crossed paths before? No, no, but he, he charmed her. He charmed her. You know? Yes, he was quite charming. Uh, one of the things also in finding this location, um, uh, the bathtub is um, an imaginary name, an imaginary place, but yet it is grounded in this particular wonderful swampy set-aside geography. Um, how did you come upon that, and how did that affect how the story went? Um, well, I got interested, you know, I, I sort of had this idea to tell a film about holdouts, and, and I got interested sort of what the holding out, like what the, what it was like to sort of be ho holding out at the very, very end of the road, and there's about five roads that go into the marsh in Louisiana. You just see on the map that the road stops at a certain point as it turns into water. And so I just started driving down to the end of every road. And for most of them, you get down there and it's mostly, you see oil worker helicopter landing pads and oil hotels and this kind of oil industry. But when you go down to the end of the one, this one road where we shot, it's this incredibly vibrant community that's been there way back that settled there you know, hundreds of years ago and, and that is still holding on down there. And so when I got there and saw this place that literally goes right up to the edge where the road just kind of chisels off and the, and the Gulf of Mexico begins, essentially, I, I knew that was the spot that this sort of brave place that was, that was at ground zero of land erosion, the oil spill, the hurricanes, and they were, they were standing their ground there. And so that, that sort of you know, and then out. once there, you built their homes, right? Part of this was you made their, their boats, you built their, the structures that they lived in. Yeah, I mean, you know, the, the place doesn't look anything like, I mean, it, it has elements that are like the film, but we certainly were imagining a more uh, drastic, off-the-grid mentality. You know, there, there, are, there is a grocery store in Point Hachem that you can go get food. You know, it's, it's not like they're as off-the-grid as we were imagining. We were trying to sort of take elements from there and imagine that it was truly cut off from the world by a giant wall and there was no way to get to the other side and, and, and how things would develop. But we tried to realistically imagine how that would develop if it was a more extreme scenario. And, um, you know, the scenario was inspired by the place, the, the marina where me and Lucy wrote the film, is slated to be cut off from the town by a giant levee. And this man who's built this up by hand for the last 25 years is basically going to be sacrificed into the Gulf of Mexico. And so that scenario that the, that the bathtub is in in the film is very much inspired by a, a real story. And, and that kind of process happens with everything. Uh, one of the things that is interesting about your own background is you coming from parents who are folklorists. And, and, and the sense that we have in this film of telling a story that's bigger and more has sort of more thematic than actual. Um, 
talk about your growing up with folklore. Did you also grow up with folklore? Did, did, did you work on this together in terms of developing the sort of the mythical part of it? I grew up with Ben's family only in the sense that they sort of took me in as a latchkey kid. When I, I mean, we've known each other since we were like 15. And you grew up, you grew up here in New York? I grew up here in New York, but me and Lucy met when we were 14, 15 years old at like a playwriting contest in New York. And um, yeah. Um, so, yes, so. Oh, so I, I mean, that's, my, my father is a pro bono criminal defense lawyer. So he, and he was, who I, who I really wrote about when I was writing the play and a lot of the work we did with this very unconventional father is based on my experience with him, um, the sort of wild heart that, that can't be tamed, <laughs> can't be like, and you know, uh, his experience being sick and threatening to break out of hospitals with, and not wanting to be plugged into a wall. And just, just those, I mean, I, I don't say that lightly, but I, I just mean so much of that came from watching my own father come That's up right. against this and his sort of, his spirit really come out as a result of all this. And the folklore aspect of it for you? Yeah, I mean, Lucy's home, it has a folkloric quality. <laughs> I mean, it's like, it is a surreal place. We drive way off the road and it, and it has this kind of mythic quality. But yeah, I mean, you know, my, I, I think that sort of, I always sort of see things in the context of folk tales. And, and um, you know, I wanted this film to exist kind of as a universal story, as something that felt like a campfire story. I mean, the, the line, once there was a hush puppy, is very much trying to allude to the idea that hush puppy sees her own life, and I'm, this comes from me, you know, uh, as this thing that potentially ripples into the future and goes into the past and has this timeless quality. And we really wanted to tell a film that was kind of rooted in realistic things, but which, which wasn't stuck in the kind of politics of you know, environmentalism, oil. Well, I wanted no, to talk you know, to you about yeah. the politics of this because uh, inevitably everybody is going to bring whatever you see in it and as you want to read into it, but it's impossible to watch a film set in Louisiana about a flood yeah. without thinking about recent events and thinking about what caused it and thinking about government involvement. Did you have anything in mind in that or is it we're supposed to bring our own interpretation? I mean, what we had in mind was to not get bogged down in that, you know, that there is an emotional, that there's a universal emotional uh, truth going on there, which is, which is that if anybody thinks about the idea of the place where they grew up and were born being erased from the map, that that's a tragedy, you know, and, and, that, and that anybody should be able to relate to this idea that if South Louisiana no longer existed and that culture was gone, that place was gone, that that would be a tragedy for the country and for the world. And so we wanted to make sure that that emotion of, of, of that loss was, was, was the dominant Although setting theme. it there is, is so specific. I mean, yeah. you say Louisiana and it's not just like any other place. It signifies, it signifies failure of government. It signifies tremendous personal loss. That was taking quite a risk. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, that just was, that, that was so much a part of the story, you know, and I think that if there was a political, thrust in the film, it, it came from, you know, sort of when I started working on the movie, it was in 2008, right after Gustav and Ike hit. Um, and there was, and I was, you know, I had to go home, I got in a car accident, I was telling everybody I'm going back to Louisiana, I'm never coming back, I'm going to go stay there, you know. 
And there was a sentiment, especially up here and, and generally in the country of, you know, why would you rebuild this place? It's going to flood again. You know, people should leave. It's not safe. Like, this is irresponsible of, of parents to raise their children in this place. And, you know, th there was certainly a reaction against that sentiment. Uh, and I wanted to make a film that celebrated uh, people that refused to, to leave their land and their homes. And right. So, and so also, it, is there. it's, you know, as you will be faced with, it's people from the north coming down and doing a story in the south. Did that ever daunt you? Well, I'm from the south, I have to, I have <laughs> to say. So I, and, and just to speak to that, it, you know, I, again, I don't want to get bogged down in the politics of it either because it, it was never in the conversation uh, that Ben or I had. But I mean, so much of this in the play, too, is based on my own. I had my own experience with my father being sick and going into these hospitals and these these different care workers that had the best of intentions but didn't know what was the best for my father and didn't know what was the best for my family and and so my, I mean I, I don't want to jump too much on on what Ben is saying but I, I just I really feel the need to, to clarify that it wasn't I mean I'm not a northerner coming down making I mean I, I just feel like so much of this it's our story. I mean, it's Court 13, we all made it, but I just feel so much personally rooted in this that I, I guess I, I was writing from my own experience and that was my own experience with, certainly with healthcare and with how we, how we treat different kinds of families. Let's switch this a little bit to the actual making of the film, the actual, um, what's involved in doing something as organic as this? You lived there, everybody lived down there. What were the days like? How could you set up a shot? Did people wander in from the neighborhood? Did, was it hard to control everybody? What, was it insane? Was it well-ordered? Um, it was Pick a, an adjective. It was a controlled, sort. well, it was a designed chaos, I would say. You know, I mean, I think that we're looking for spontaneity on screen and we're looking for unpredictable things on screen. And so we're, you know, we're designing a film that combines children, water, animals uh, in extremely hostile environments, you know, uh, in, in crazy conditions. And so, you know, I think that's part of the idea is that we don't, you know, we sort of imagine the film beforehand, but we want that imagination to be reacting with the actual world and creating things that we don't expect. and. We want to have to chase the film in a way, you know, and so so scene by scene, you know what you want to do, but you're sort of open to how it goes in a different direction. Well, you want you set it up as like an athletic event, you know. I mean, it's like you you know exactly what you want. You have this beautiful camera move where oh, we're gonna like drift around this and this is gonna cross frame left, but then you get to the water and the current's going the opposite way that you expect it to be, and you have to change your plans and 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 you and it's changing your plans as you get. You get four guys that are boat experts dropping Cajun anchors into the mud and, and creating rigging below the water. And it becomes this thing that you, instead of having four beautiful shots, you get one shot at it and everybody's kind of, it becomes this thing where you stop intellectualizing so much and you, and you just start fighting. And, 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 I, and the idea is that that fight gets into the movie and that the, and the sweat of that experience is, is in the kind of rough edges of the film. In the so way it's not it looks pristine. and feels, yes, yeah. exactly. Um, we're gonna open this up to a couple of questions. Uh, is there anybody? Uh, yes, you, uh, yes. Um, I guess my question is, since you mentioned it was unconventional filmmaking, how was it gaining funding for it? Since unconventional the, uh, funding? Yeah. Um, is Phil still here? I don't know. Uh, we, uh, but anyway, we had, a, I mean, we had an amazing, uh, 
we had an amazing situation where basically this company called Cinereach, who's based out of New York, um, which is a nonprofit, saw my short film and, and basically asked me what I wanted to do next. Um, and, and paid with the exception of a couple of small grants uh, for the entire film. And um, it's an it was an amazing situation to be in because um, they, did, they had no financial agenda behind choices. And, and traditionally, American movies especially, you know, every dollar you get is based on a box office value of a cast member who you're going to cast or some sort of genre that you fit into that has some kind of, uh, you know, there's some equation there. And for them, this was all about the art, and it was all about taking risky choices. And so when you get to a moment where you, you're lead of the film, you're deciding between you know, an established actor or a baker, and you call your financier and you say, we want to go with the baker, and they say, great, that's what we were hoping for, too. That's an incredible Because Dwight privilege. Henry is a baker. Because he's a baker, yeah. The, the, the father ran the bakery across the street from our casting office. And that, and that plays itself out in every risky choice. You know, we just got to take chances uh, with this film that, that most filmmakers never get a shot at. So it was a real gift to us, um, and they're an amazing company. Front uh, row? Uh, yes, front row. Hello. So now, um, hey. combining stories, did you guys take two pieces of papers, like here's my script, here's your script, or did you guys just start fresh and develop all new motives, all new scenes, all new acts, all new goals for the film? I would say it was a lot of both. I mean, the, the script we came to the Sundance Labs with, well, the first thing we did, if I'm correct, was we had this huge, huge document that we brought to the, when we got into the Sundance Labs that was really every idea that we ever wanted to do with this movie, every storyline, every character. There were like, I can't even remember how many subplots. There, there was, I mean, we, we just had so much. So that was the first thing, was, but we did have a, one great big document that was like five movies inside and then it, it actually came from uh, several of your both stories and plays and we went through all of lucy's writing and pulled out like every little chunk that we thought related to the story and then sort of went from there and then like interviews with people that were from katrina or like do government documents talking about i, I just remember the one phrase uh, areas deemed salvageable that i thought was so Stunning, and that I mean, it was a government way way of speaking about it. So just a lot of different, a lot of different things went into a prayer that Ben found from an ancient Jewish text. Right. Like I mean, it was like a everything. pile of junk that we then started sculpting with. You know, it was like we created the pile first, and then we started picking through it and trying to find what the shape was and why we had selected this particular pile. That that's what it, what it reminds me of. But it did keep coming down to that relationship between yeah. Hush Puppy and her dad. And, and I would say whenever we had a doubt, we would go back to that relationship and, and the story would go from there. Second row to your right. Hi. Uh, I'm very intrigued by the character Hush Puppy and you usually don't find her, I don't know, her understanding of the world and ripples in such a young character, or you would see it in a more experienced character that's had all these life experiences, has already had loss and suffering and a lack of innocence that then come to the idea that areas of my life are affected by everything, and in turn, I affect those things as well. Um, so I'm wondering if you chose specifically a child innocence to really portray this mentality, because it's very interesting to hear you know, words like, especially in the trailer and some of the clips that I've seen her speak on such with an open mindedness and such like a wisdom beyond her years. And I think, is that part of it that 
comes with a child loss of losing her father and all is that playing in and that does that work against her mentality and how she sees or how she can take the world so right. seemingly as is um yes yeah <laughs> um you know but no it's it is a very specific age, you know, and that was part of what we realized is, is, is working with kids. You know, we, we, want, we needed to be um, at a moment before you start, you know, when you're six, it's like somewhere between when you're six and nine, you start to separate out reality and fantasy. You know, and we needed to be before that moment because Hush Puppy has no separation between something that she's imagining and something that's actually there. And we, and we wanted to make a film that kind of lived inside that perspective. So. You know, I, I remember being six and, uh, you know, having an imaginary friend. And if that imaginary friend didn't show up when we were supposed to play, I would cry. You know, and that emotion was very real, even though an adult would tell me that that person wasn't there. So it was really important that she have this sort of mystical world that was, that was a real mystical world. And, and it was also really important that we had a character that didn't fully grasp the idea of death and the idea of uh, sort of, you know, things that were happening in nature and that she would sort of understand things with a purely emotional, like very, very simple uh, set, of, set of needs. And, and, and that came from part of, part of what we were talking about before where people are saying, you know, you can, as an adult, you can rationalize, you know, oh, you should leave your home because it's dangerous for these practical reasons and you'd be safer if you went somewhere else. And you can say that about a parent. But, you know, I wanted to think about, like, what six-year-old could you tell that you should leave your parent no six-year-old would do that, you know, and, and I, thought, I think that's a very pure and real uh, impulse that, that, we, that we needed to kind of make that point uh, stick the way we wanted it to. Back row. Oh, hi. I was wondering if you could talk about your group of 13 and how you guys met and uh, why you said you worked as a PA on a film and what rules you were consciously breaking and then how you divvied up the responsibilities or what that all was like how you formed as a unit, and then how you progressed and made the film, if it was different from how films are traditionally made. And can I add to that great question, which is, could you ever do something like this again? I mean, is this a one-time event of working in this manner, which comes out of the same aspect, I think, of these guys working together? Um, yeah, the one thing, it's, it's not 13 people or anything. It's, uh, it's called Court 13 after the, the squash court where the, the kind of collective was found founded um which is where we were working and and um you know it's it's um the main the main difference is the way that you normally move into a film i think is a, is a script gets locked and then that and that script gets financed and then your team is basically breaking down that script and executing every line that's written in it blindly you know um and for us you know, it's, it's, uh, it's not that the jobs are that different. You know, it's not like there are seven people directing an actor or anything like that. The, the jobs are pretty much the same. It's just that we're keeping uh, this flexibility in the text so that we have the ability to surprise ourselves. So if you send a location scout out looking for a bar, but they get lost and they find a river that's amazing and they say, why don't we shoot this scene at the river, you know, instead of the bar, I have this idea. You have the ability to kind of pivot and say. Did that happen? I mean, things like that. Not that specific example, but yeah, no, I, I mean, I would send our locations get out and you just find incredible locations and then those locations end up defining the story. And, and that goes into every single element. You know, the actors, you know, you cast and you have a part written for a 15-year-old girl and then you find an amazing 35-year-old man who somehow speaks to the same element of the story and you have the ability to adapt that in. So, so that's, that's one really important element of it. Um, 
And, um, and, and to answer your question, you know, it's definitely not the culmination. It's, it's something, it's also, it almost doesn't feel like a first film to me because we made such gigantic shorts. To me, it feels like really the third Core 13 production, and, and that's hopefully three of 100. You know, but we want so to you on. intend to continue working in the same, in the yeah. same collaborative structure? Yeah, absolutely. Right here in the last row. I'm wondering why you decided to look for specifically for um, non-professional actors. Um, it, I don't think it was a specific goal. It wasn't a principle that we are going to use non-professionals. It's just a different kind of approach to casting. You know, we we really wanted to cast the film locally. Um, was one really important thing is is because partly be, you know it's uh, we want the act because it's sort of this idea of giving agency to the to the elements. You know, having an actor who comes in with all this experience and kind of uh, who's lived through a lot of the issues that are in the film gives them a whole kind of world to bring to the story and, and they can change the film and make it their own in a way that is unique, you know, that somebody from the outside wouldn't be able to do. And, you know, and also it's just sort of, and this goes for crew members as well, we're, looking, we're really looking for, we kind of, it's, this, the film feels like a family project in a way and, and we're trying to find people that we want to bring into our family and you can't really tell that from a resume, you know, or, or a series of roles that someone has. And so when we're looking at someone we start off talking about their life. We try to figure out that there's something about who they are that we think speaks to what we're trying to do. And, and so because that's equally important, a lot of non-professionals end up getting the roles. And in this film, it ended up being all non-professionals got those roles, even though we looked at lots of professional actors as well. And we have time for two more questions. First one is in the back, standing. Hi, guys. Uh, can you tell me a little bit about your relationship with Dan Romer and what role the score played in the in the narrative. Thank you for bringing that up. Yes, because the music I think is is crucial to this film also. Um, yeah, Dan Dan's another kind of member of the family. Um, I, I've, he's worked on all three of my films, and and um, he uh, you know we co-write the music together, um, and you know just to I guess I guess as to the role of the, of the movie of the music in the film. Um, it's, uh, it, it became something, or when we figured it out, it was, it was because we realized we had to score Hush Puppy's sense of her own story, you know, as opposed to looking at the film objectively and if a scene was tense, scoring it tense, or if it was sad, scoring it sad. It was all about how does Hush Puppy feel about what's happening to her at this moment. And so when you look at the, like the trailer, you know, objectively, it's just a little girl running around with sparklers, but for her, that's this moment of like massive cultural importance where she's the king of the bathtub and she's this little hero. And, and so we needed a theme that had this kind of patriotic, glorious uh, sense to it so that you can sort of understand the way that she understands her own story. And, you know, I, I thought about it the way that uh, when you're six, uh, you, you have, you can be doing nothing important, but you have like the Indiana Jones theme song running in your head or the, or the Batman song is running in your head because the world has this adventure to it. And so, so we tried to score the film with that kind of six-year-old sensibility. Final question, do we have a final question? I'm not, I'm not a filmmaker, but um, if you were to make another film similar to this or in the same sort of uh, unconventional way, would you end up using any conventional film methods or processes? Um, it's an interesting question. Um, it's not like there was nothing done conventionally. Uh, you know, like our, our post-production process, you know, once, once the sort of actual making of the film ends, the production ends, you know, our post-production actually happens in a very, you know, we go and there's an editor and we edit and we sound design Where it. Where was that done? 
Um, we edited about half the. We edited for about two years. I guess that's unconventional. But uh, you know, we edited about half the film in New Orleans. And then we came to New York and edited the other half, and and we did our sound and VFX and stuff. You know, um, you know, I, I think that that's sort of the the unconventional thing is about is about accumulating the material and trying to get these shots that are only possible through this physical act. You know, and then once you have that mass of stuff to actually sculpt that into a narrative that is compelling and, and has a structure and you know we want the films to be accessible they're not supposed to be these weird movies the, the idea is to tell folk tales that connect and so that sculpting happens in a very conventional way and so so our post-production actually looks a lot like other things except for the fact that uh we just take as long as we need to you know we we, we take a long time and we fight with it real hard I think uh, this is a good place to end. Uh, one thing I just want to say is that you do walk out feeling elated. There's a glorious feeling to it, which is what you're describing, what you want to feel at the end of this. Go and see it. It's just a terrific film. Ben Zeitlin, Lucy Alibar, thank you so much. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much. Ben and Lucy, thank you again for being here. And thank you guys for your amazing questions and being such a good audience. Just a quick reminder, you can always check apple.com forward slash Soho for all the upcoming events and guests. Thank you so much for being here. We hope you guys had a good time. We'll see you next time. Take care now.